Please be seated. And you can turn with me in your copy of the Word of God to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 3. Matthew 3, as we look at verses 1 through 12 this morning on this second Sunday of Advent. Advent means coming. The coming of our Lord Jesus was preceded by the forerunner, John the Baptist, as he would come in the spirit and power of the prophet Elijah to prepare the way for the Lord Jesus and really to prepare hearts in order to receive him. And so we're going to look at a few moments this morning at Matthew's account of John the Baptist, the impact of his ministry and the fulfillment of it as he speaks in verses 11 and 12 of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to notice three things this morning as we make some observations. Number one, uh, Matthew gives us the introduction of John the Baptist in verses 1 through 4. And then secondly, we have the immediate impact of John's message in verses 5 through 10. And then thirdly and finally, we have the future fulfillment of John's ministry. And he outlines that in verses 11 and 12. So along with an outline of the message, join me in prayer. Let's ask God to bless our time together with Him and His Word this morning. Heavenly Father, I pray now that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart might be pleasing in Your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Father, we wish to see Jesus and Him only. We pray that You would send Your Holy Spirit and bring these ancient words to life in our hearts and minds. Help us to hear what the Spirit would say to the church, individually and corporately. Help us to follow you in obedience. We make our prayer confidently and humbly. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, first I want you to notice the introduction of John the Baptist. And Matthew gives us this particular thing in three Movements, his message, his motive or motivation, and his manner of life. First of all, his message, and you see it in verse 2a. It was simple and easy to understand. Repent. Repent. The word means to turn, to exercise a change of mind that leads to a change of the will. It means to pause and acknowledge truth and a new direction in life. Biblically, it means to turn from a life of sin and autonomy, turn away from those things, and turn to God's grace and mercy through His Son, Jesus Christ. John was preparing the way for Jesus by calling people to acknowledge that they were sinners, to confess their sins, and to turn to God, and to show fruit of that by being baptized. This was not a Christian baptism as we know it, it was a forerunner to that, just like John was a forerunner to Jesus. He spoke plainly and unapologetically about sin. He was not afraid to mention it. And I believe that's because John was God's man. John was filled with the Spirit from his birth. All he could do was point to the truth. You don't do anyone any favors when you don't call out in a loving and gracious way, their sin. 
You have to be a sinner. You have to know your sin and confess your sin before you can become a Christian. But that was John's message, in essence, was to repent. It would be the same message, the inaugural message of our Lord Jesus. In Mark 1 through chapter 1, verse 15, when he said, The time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. This Advent season, it's a wonderful time to repent, to turn, start over, start fresh with our Lord. That was his message. Now, I want you to notice his motivation. We see that in the latter part of verse 2. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. John's message of repentance is motivated by the imminent presence of the kingdom of heaven. The Bible also calls this the kingdom of God. John is the herald for the coming king of all kings. And as king, the appearance of the Lord Jesus means the dawning of his everlasting kingdom. Now, there is a supernatural element here in many ways. A large part of repentance is God's grace opening our eyes to the reality of his ultimate king and kingdom. And through repentance, we renounce our primary allegiance to earthly kings and earthly commitments and kingdoms in order to embrace the true king and his kingdom. But you see, if you don't see something of the kingdom of God as a reality, you won't repent. A lot of people misunderstand what repentance is. Whenever the word is mentioned from pulpits, it's not telling you to turn over a new leaf. Repentance is not asking you in your own effort to start fresh. No, repentance is supernatural. It is a gift from God. And it begins when you start seeing with the eyes of your heart the reality of the kingdom. The kingdom of God is at hand. And this is a supernatural thing. And whenever the Lord enters our lives, He brings us to that point where we have to realize, I've been living in one realm according to one set of rules and guides, but now my eyes have been opened to the reality of God's kingdom and God's King, the Lord Jesus. And that leads me to conviction. It leads me to say, Lord, like Isaiah said, woe is me, I'm undone. There's nothing I can do in order to turn myself, God has to do a work in my heart. He has to open my eyes spiritually so that I see and believe the reality of His kingdom. You see examples of that in the Bible. Here and there, the Lord making an appearance in an unusual way. We think about Elijah. Whenever he was surrounded by the Syrian army, or the Assyrians, and they were outnumbered completely. And Elijah said, don't worry about it to his servant. Don't worry about it. God's got it under control. And I'm sure the servant must have thought that Elijah was nuts. I mean, if you're surrounded by hundreds of thousands of people, how can you possibly say everything is under control? And then Elijah said, Lord, open the man's eyes. God opened his eyes and he looked around and he saw the chariots of Almighty God covering the fields, totally outnumbering the Assyrians. And on that day, the Lord gained a great, great victory in battle. 
Elijah prayed and God opened the servant's eyes. And that, in many ways, is what happens whenever we exercise true repentance. God opens our eyes to the reality of His kingdom and His King. And when we look at the kingdom and we look at ourselves and we look at the King, we say with Isaiah, Woe is me. I'm undone. And we are converted. We are regenerated. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old things passed away. New things have come. We become new creatures in Christ. Another aspect of John's motivation, his divine appointment as the forerunner or the herald of Jesus Christ. You'll notice there a scripture is quoted, and that is Isaiah 40, verse 3. You see it in verse 3. This is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. John was motivated by the Word of God. John was motivated by God's plan for his life. He was the man at this moment as God's messenger to prepare the people for the coming of the King. Notice thirdly, not only his message and motivation, but his manner of life. Look at verses 1 and 4. The Bible says simply, In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of the desert of Judea. Verse 4, Now John himself had a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. We're told that John basically lived and preached in the wilderness of Judea, the most out-of-the-way place. And this was a desert region. It wasn't a place of ease and comfort and luxury. Verse 4, Matthew offers us a further insight concerning John's clothing and diet. He wore a garment of camel's hair with a leather belt, as I've said before, and he was no slave to fashion. Okay. His diet consisted of locusts and wild honey. And obviously, John's manner of life was simple and basic and not ostentatious. He had no formal education. He had no ordination papers. He could not boast of any particular school or training that he received from a famous rabbi. All of this reminds us of the holy and supernatural ministry of John the Baptist. His entire manner of life reminds us of the great prophet Elijah. Elijah didn't need a PR program. Elijah didn't need a team to run ahead of him and announce his coming. He simply showed up. And whatever he said, the Lord confirmed with his words. Well, this is John the Baptist. He's out in the middle of nowhere, no auditorium, no air conditioning. And what are the people doing? They're going to him. They're going to him. Even though his manner of life basically says, I don't live like the religious leaders. Religious leaders were bent on pleasing themselves. They were bent on manipulating others to their own advantage. John didn't live that way. His life was simple. He could never be accused of being in it for the money. He could never be accused of taking advantage of people. He didn't preach to please or manipulate anyone. He spoke pure, unvarnished truth. And he was not driven by material considerations but by the reality of God's King and His everlasting kingdom. Because of these things, John the man and John the message could not be ignored. You 
And so Matthew introduces us to this unusual man who appeared on the scene and yet was supposed to appear and was prophesied about to make ready for the king. And again, I say, ladies and gentlemen, the reaction to this is supernatural. You know, the Bible says that we have been delivered from the domain of darkness. And Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2 that the Lord in saving us has raised us up and seated us in the heavens. Now, if you believe that, there is a sense in which you have one foot in this world and one foot in the eternal realm. You know, we often say that in a negative way. You've got one foot in the world and one foot in the church or one foot in heaven. But there is a positive thing taught in the Bible, and that is we are citizens primarily of heaven. Now, we are citizens here on earth, but that's temporary. But if we truly see ourselves that spiritually we are actually seated with Christ in the heavens, your perspective is going to open up. Just like whenever we read the Scriptures... If you introduce yourself to the Scriptures, the Scriptures are powerful, and they will open the eyes of your heart so that you'll begin to see heavenly realities. And those realities will begin to condition how you conduct yourself when you see the true reality of who God is and what He is doing. I think that's why the Apostle Paul said in Philippians, I don't know what to choose. To go on to be with the Lord or to stay near with you? I think Paul had so clearly in his mind and heart the understanding that he already was seated with Christ in the heavens. And he was tempted to make that materialize. That is our lot as believers. We've got to see that. Because that's what brings about repentance. That's what brings about faith. That's what brings about fruit in the Christian life. Is believing truly believe, even though we can't see these realities. Well, that is the introduction of John. Now notice the immediate impact of John's message. Look at verses 5 and 10, and we see basically two groups. Number one, the crowd in verses 5 and 6, and then the religious hierarchy, or the Pharisees and the Sadducees in verses 7 through 10. Now, first of all, the crowd. You know, many reject and run from a message calling for repentance, but not here. Everyone was drawn by John's word, so they went out to him. Indeed, they were responding to the word of the Lord as they acknowledged their sin and corresponding need for cleansing and forgiveness. And here we see hunger and humility and obedience. Spiritual hunger, because they sought to follow and hear John's message. They didn't wait. You know, a lot of people I talk to sometimes, I'm waiting for the Lord to do something in my life. I'm waiting for the Lord to demonstrate that He's there. I'm waiting this, I'm waiting that. Here you see a spiritual hunger inside of the hearts of these people. They're going out into the desert because that's where the messenger is. And that's where the message is. They were hungry spiritually. And this was no time to be casual, to sit back and wait for God to do something to them. No, they were ambitious. There's also humility. You'll notice it came and they confessed their sins. They were open about it. They didn't try to conceal or hide their sinfulness. And then there's obedience because they received baptism as John directed. 
You know, John's baptism was something very interesting to a conscientious Jew. Jews didn't get baptized. Proselytes did. If you were a Gentile and you wanted to become a Jew, you would basically baptize yourself because a conscientious Jew would not put his hands on you or sprinkle water or immerse you. This is the most humbling thing in the world. These people are not concerned about any protocol. These people are not concerned about concealing anything. They're open and transparent. And they're coming to John in hunger and humility and obedience, saying, I want to be ready for the king. I don't want to miss this. I want open ears and an open heart because I want to know that this is true and I want to embrace this king and his kingdom. That's what repentance is, ladies and gentlemen. Well, notice the religious hierarchy, just the opposite. The Pharisees had a long history of parading the law of God as a symbol of self-righteousness. They carried themselves, not with humility and submission, but with arrogance and hypocrisy. They were called the separate ones. That's why you see in this passage, John noticed the crowd that came forward, but then the Pharisees and the Sadducees came themselves. Because the Pharisees were known as the separated ones. They wouldn't dare get around a Gentile, and they certainly wouldn't get around other Jews, because they distanced themselves from all other Jews. They had a very, very high opinion of themselves. The Sadducees were more the liberal bent. They saw themselves as the enlightened ones, because they rejected supernatural realities, like a modern-day liberal. They uh, taught throughout Scripture uh, that angels and the Spirit of God and resurrection don't exist. They thought they were enlightened. They thought they were educated. They were fools. They were very rich, and they were custodians of the high priestly family. John the Baptist points out four things concerning these men. I want you to notice them carefully. Number one, their true identity in verse 7. When he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, and that really is somewhat misleading, the text actually communicates and in other places that they were coming perhaps to observe what was going on. They wanted to know what was taking place. Perhaps some of them wanted to be baptized, but we wonder why. John says, you brood of vipers. You know, a viper is a small, poisonous serpent, such as the one that fastened its deadly fangs on the Apostle Paul at Malta in Acts 28. And John, note, doesn't call them vipers, but a brood of vipers. That's significant. The Greek word is Gehenna. Points to what is born or produced. Offspring is what John is saying. John is essentially saying what Jesus would say later to these men, namely, you are of your father the devil. You are offspring of children of vipers. John is pointing to the hypocrisy and the treachery and the fatal deceptions of these men. They were like whitewashed tombs, as Jesus would have said. They're always parading their righteousness. But they really had none. And this is why John asked the rhetorical question, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? John is essentially saying, why are you here and who told you to come? And by calling them children of the devil, basically, many scholars believe that John was intimating that Satan was leading them to come for his own reasons. The religious leaders wanted to blend in with the crowd because they feared John. The crowd knew that John was a prophet indeed. In another place, Jesus asked the same question to them, 
John's baptism, was it of heaven or was it from men? And they would not answer because they knew that everybody thought John was a prophet. And so these politicians, political religious leaders, had to get on board some way. They had to show up, make a good showing in the flesh. And that's exactly what they did. Who told you to flee from the wrath to come? It wasn't me. John would not bend. He would not acquiesce. He wasn't happy that religious leaders showed up. No, he stayed true. Notice also their, not their true identity, but their lack of fruit. Look at verse 8. Therefore bear fruit in keeping with repentance. They did not come confessing their sins as the crowd did. Perhaps they never saw themselves as sinners. You get that impression whenever you read the New Testament. And John was saying, look, if you truly want to repent, you don't come separated from the rest of the crowd. You come with the crowd. You come confessing your sins just like they do. You don't come parading yourself as a Pharisee or a Sadducee. You don't come as a casual onlooker. You give yourself 100% to what's going on here, just like the people did. He also reveals their misplaced trust. Look at verse 9. Do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that from these stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. The religious leaders, especially the Pharisees, were notorious for citing their heritage as a reason to be acceptable to God. John exposes this object of their trust. There was no confession of sin, and thus there was no willingness to change. Why? Because these men thought they were already right with God. They believed the physical descendants of Abraham through Jacob were safe from God's wrath because of their father Abraham. And they were sure that his connection with Abraham guaranteed them all the blessings of the Messianic kingdom to the exclusion of the Gentile world. And Jesus, or John, shatters this conviction in his words. I tell you, God can raise up stones as children of Abraham. John is saying it in essence, don't fancy. Somehow you're more special to God than these others because of your connection to Abraham. The Lord can raise up stones as children of Abraham. And the irony of it is he did. He can raise up someone who is dead and lifeless like a stone. He can raise up a prostitute or a tax collector. He can raise up a Gentile, a Roman centurion, a man stricken with leprosy. The Lord can raise up from a dead stone and make a human being alive and converted. He doesn't need you. He can bring the Gentiles in as dead stones. The Lord can do whatever He wants, and He's the one that's in control behind the scenes here not you. He exposed their misplaced trust. He also pointed to their imminent doom. Look at verse 10. The axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. John concludes his section by revealing not only that judgment is coming, but the fact that it's already taking place. You remember Romans 1.18. Paul said, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven not going to be revealed. It is being revealed. And it demonstrates itself primarily in unbelief. 
When people reject the gospel, when they look at Christ, and for a, a myriad of reasons they say no to Jesus, that is evidence of the wrath of God already. Now John points to these things of these men, and it's very convicting. Let's take care that we know our true identity. You know, the Bible says these things were written that you might know that you have eternal life. Not that you might guess. And who wouldn't want to know that you have eternal life? Let's take care to make sure our lives demonstrate fruit. Let's not go through life fooling ourselves like the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Let's make sure we don't have a misplaced trust. That we're not looking to connection. You know, some people think that because I came from a Christian family, that means I'm already in. Now, there are advantages to being a part of the covenant, but that doesn't mean that there's fruit in your life. And there are people that can go through life with a Christian connection and still not be converted. Just like the Pharisees and the Sadducees were of our father Abraham. I've heard people like that before. My grandfather built this church. We're a fourth or fifth generation in this church. So what? You have to negotiate the hall of the covenant individually. And you have to come to faith and repentance on your own. As God opens your eyes and your heart, don't have a misplaced trust. Be aware of imminent doom. The Lord's wrath is already being revealed. You don't want to be a part of that. And John concludes his message by demonstrating the future fulfillment of all that he came to do in verse 11. This is the regeneration of Christ. As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me, that is Jesus, is mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. John makes it clear that while his baptism is symbolic of repentance, this baptism offered by God's Messiah is infinitely greater. I baptize you with water to prepare you for the Lord Jesus. But when He comes, He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. That is, He will regenerate you in the heart, and He will cleanse you and purify you throughout. He will cleanse you of your sin. This is why Peter said, when he mentioned baptism in 1 Peter 3, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience. The Lord's baptism is inward and spiritual. And He baptizes our hearts. He sends His Spirit. And that's what regenerates a man or a woman. And then He cleanses us like fire of all of our sin. And He makes our conscience clear. And these things are precious gifts given to us that we might have life. And finally, He says, His winnowing fork is in His hand, and He will thoroughly clear His threshing floor. He will gather His wheat into the barn, but He will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. You know, hell is hot and real, and hell is eternal. He doesn't say they'd be annihilated. He says the fire will be unquenchable. What else could God do for those who reject His Son? What else could God do for those who trample on Jesus? We either run to Him or we repel Him. We either submit to Him and humble ourselves before the Lord Jesus or we walk away from Him. 
And just as eternal damnation is present in this chapter also, the certainty of God's hold on us is there too. He will gather his wheat into the barn. That's why Peter speaks of the great hope that we have as Christians. We are indeed citizens of another country. And the Lord is bringing that to full fruition throughout our lives as we are sanctified and made ready for heaven. Do you know the Lord Jesus? He's more than a babe in a manger. He's the eternal King, the Son of God. And His kingdom is already here. We just don't see it all yet. But why don't you be a part of it? Because when you know and you trust Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, now you're ready for Christmas and all the joy that comes with it. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your preparation through John the Baptist for this great time of Advent, the coming of Your Son, the Lord Jesus. Lord, may You prepare our hearts now as we take the Lord's Supper and we enjoy a spiritual, rich communion with You around Your table. Lead us in that direction, Lord, we pray.